Welcome to Policy Today. Thoughtful discussion of current issues vital to the future prosperity of Washington State. Produced by the Washington Research Council. My name is Lou Moore. I'm the president of the Washington Research Council, and I'm here today with Mary Strau, our communications director, with Randy Abrams-Karras, who is our good friend and pragmatic progressive panelist. And uh, with us today as a special guest, we are very grateful to have Governor and former U.S. Senator as well, Dan Evans. Uh, Governor Evans uh, has had a long and distinguished career in our state that has not ended yet. He's still involved in public policy, and we're looking forward to talking to him today about vital issues that affect all of us. Mary? Well, Governor Evans, first of all, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to have you here. It's a delight to be back talking politics. Wonderful, wonderful. I wanted to start off, um, we were talking a little bit before this podcast started about how we were all gushing over your keynote address to the uh, National Republican Convention in 1968. And uh, for our listeners, I'll post a link to it um, in the blog post. Um, And one of the fascinating themes you had is uh, sort of a balance between the role of government and the role of the private sector and it, it was a it was a nuanced argument it wasn't just a quick you know five second thing it was talking about look there at least my takeaway from it was look of course there are proper there's a proper role for the government where the government needs to be there but there's also a role for the private sector and you you said it so eloquently um and i would i'm wondering you know in the context of today how do you think we're doing in this state in terms of the balance between, let's say you look at the state budget and um, spending and taxes, how are we doing in, in balancing those goals that you, you laid out? Well, that's pretty hard to tell, just, uh, especially just by measuring it in dollars in a budget. Uh, but I always have felt that there was not that we shouldn't have uh, enemies between the private sector and government. Uh, and besides, I think there's a third force that is extraordinarily important, and that's the volunteer sector uh, and the nonprofit sector. And they play a huge role, not very well recognized in our political fracases that we get into which are usually between private enterprise and government. But uh, I think that there is a huge role for that third sector, and all three of them ought to look upon themselves as partners in an enterprise to provide the best future we can for us, our children, and our grandchildren. What areas do you think that the volunteer sector, say today, could play um, a helpful, beneficial role to state government and private enterprise? Well, I think that they've got some uh, pretty darn good ideas about how to do things. Uh, We've always had a pretty healthy volunteer sector working in and with the uh, public education uh, programs of our state. Uh, We have have a rising group of uh, volunteers in other fields as well, in uh, uh, helping the disabled uh, in in getting into the uh, the problems of even those who are in or coming out of uh, prisons. So there's there's a place and there's somebody 
uh, some stronger than others, but uh, there's somebody in the volunteer sector working in all of those fields. Uh, and also, um, I'm thinking of the Washington Wildlife and Recreation Coalition oh. that you are a founder of, and that seems to be a great example of where private sector, public sector, and nonprofit all work together toward a common goal, mm -hmm. and quite successfully. Well, you're right. I should have I should have mentioned that right at the beginning because uh, when Governor Lowry and I started it in 1989, little did you know that 25 years later, 26, uh, it would be as bigger and better and stronger than it's ever been. And I think the secret was in pulling together as many uh, different organizations, volunteer organizations, as we could. Not all volunteer organizations. We've got, uh, you know, everybody from the uh, State Labor Council to the Washington Business Association of Business. And uh, we've got uh, a whole variety of people. And now, when you show to a new legislator the list of over 250 organizations supporting the WWRC, their first uh, reaction is, where can I sign up? because it's a very powerful volunteer group that has a big impact on what happens in public policy. It's, it's really impressive. The, I go to the breakfast every year, yeah. um, and the room is crowded, and, um, and the amount of dollars that are leveraged is, is, um, mm -hmm. is really impressive. In fact, we, um, we just several years ago, uh, in keeping track of both the legislative appropriations and the matching monies from uh, local governments and groups uh, that are required. This is all a matching kind of partnership, and it just passed the billion-dollar mark. So, wow, that's amazing. It is amazing. Uh, well, continuing, Governor, in the environmental vein, uh, climate change is a serious issue facing us. I think mm -hmm. most people recognize that. Um, we have a uh, about 300,000 of our citizens have signed a petition uh, for a carbon tax to put that on the ballot. Mm -hmm. uh, we understand there might be a cap and trade or, or a competing mm -hmm. initiative trying to deal with the same issue. But what are your feelings just in general about the approach we should take to climate change? Well, first, I think there is, um, you get a lot more out of incentives than in penalties. And so I'm a skeptic, frankly, when it comes to carbon taxes and uh, cap and trade. Uh, I think we could get a lot further with incentives. But uh, I think the whole argument among people about whether there is or isn't climate change uh, is uh, it hits at the wrong uh, it's, it's the wrong argument because you can still be a skeptic uh, or, or convinced. And uh, I chaired a National Science Foundation commission on global climate change uh, some 20 some years ago. <laughs> and at that time, it was a, there was a lot more uncertainty about what was going on. But even then, uh, we said, okay, there is uncertainty, but we looked at all of the things that could be done to ameliorate climate change and then ranked them by their cost-benefit ratios. And we found that if you effectively did all of those things that had positive cost-benefit ratios, so they were worthwhile doing regardless of climate change, we would be way ahead of any of the goals that we've now set or are trying to set. 
So um, it, it seems to me that the whole idea was um, it's an insurance policy. Uh, you may, you know, we all buy fire insurance, but seldom do we expect to have our homes burn. But we buy the insurance because it's an appropriate, prudent thing to do. And I think the same thing is true of, of climate change. If you did all of the things that were cost-effective to do, in other words, you should do it anyhow because it makes sense, we'd, we'd be a long way down the road towards solving our problem. So I think the, the argument's on the wrong side. We ought to turn it and, and focus in a way that um, everybody could buy into. A follow-up to that question, Governor. It seems to me, at least, in Washington State, a lot of folks are interested in or more than willing to uh, use our laws as a statement, as a national statement. Example, this carbon tax. Mm -hmm. Uh, Reducing carbon in Washington State is not going to have much effect on global climate change. But how do you feel about that? Do you feel that that's a legitimate way to go as a a legitimate uh, policy effort when it's not really going to solve the problem, but it's more sending a message? Or do you think that that's not the right approach considering what it could do to our state's competitiveness or arguments that some people make? Well, I'm just not sure that that's the best thing to do. Uh, It's, uh, you know, it's that that gets into the penalty part of, uh, of this whole thing. And uh, we just haven't done the job I think we could do and should be doing in uh, encouraging uh, the kind of uh, reaction that makes sense both uh, politically as well as economically. And so I'm, I am frankly not very happy about the directions we're taking because I think we're missing out on an opportunity to pull everybody together and instead dividing us into, you know, who knows where the majority lies. Why are you the last Republican governor this state has had? Can you venture a guess or do you have an opinion? Oh, no, I've got an absolute answer. (laughs) great. None of the other Republican candidates since got enough votes. <laughs> uh, well, and, you know, we came awfully close. Uh, uh, you know, Dino Rossi got named governor twice, and the third time he didn't. So uh, it's come very close. But uh, I think most races uh, come down to candidates. And it's uh, you've got to have good candidates, probably in the state of Washington, better candidates than, uh, than the opposition as, as Republicans. But um, look what's happening in the legislature. Republicans now are a majority in the Senate, and they're one vote away from a tie in the House. And I think that that comes from just having uh, gone out and finding good candidates who fit the districts they run in. And I think there's um, the same thing applies in running for governor. And I think the Republicans this time have a very good, able, smart guy in Bill Bryant. Uh, and he is a lot further ahead than I was at this same time in the election cycle. He's better known and he's got a much more effective ground campaign working. So uh, we shall see. But I do think, you know, leaving all candidates aside... Uh, I just don't think that it is good for the state or for the people to have one party rule for 36 years. Uh, You just almost by definition uh, get 
uh, kind of bloated. Uh, government gets bloated and barnacle encrusted. There is no change. New ideas are harder to uh, to come into. And I think a clean sweep once in a while is not a bad idea. Well, I was in Olympia for all of the ties, and it was it was challenging. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that some of some very essential things happened, and maybe some of the bloat was diminished. Mm -hmm. um, but speaking of of conflict mm -hmm. and Olympia, we have this McCleary decision. Oh, well, indeed, we do. And mm -hmm. if you were governor right now, or what advice would you give to those policymakers who are responsible for solving this and for adequately funding public education so that we have we can meet mm -hmm. all of the the wonderful goals you set out in your keynote address in 1968 mm -hmm. well i think that um we've got a very interesting situation because frankly i think the supreme court is very close to the edge of legislating rather than adjudicating and that, that's a fairly that's fairly common, not just with the courts trying to play in the other two um, you know, barnyards, but the legislators like to execute, and governors like to both legislate and uh, adjudicate. So uh, it's not new, but I think in this particular case, with the, the huge implications of it, that uh, they're. I think it was unnecessary and probably unwise for them to declare the legislature in contempt of the court because the deadlines haven't even approached yet. They're still several years away, and uh, I don't know how you can be in contempt of a court when uh, the deciding point hasn't even come yet. But uh, secondly, and just looking at the issues, if I were if I were governor, the first thing that I would be looking at is how do we make the common school educational program work better than it does today. And that's not measured only in dollars. And that's where I think we're, we're focused on the wrong thing. All the focus is on how many dollars you have to spend, including the courts. Uh, and uh, I, think th I think that's wrong. I think there are plenty of things that could be done to make the school system work better, uh, be better for its children, and accomplish more. And many of those things don't cost a whole lot of money. Um, speaking of McCleary and uh, debates around money and how much it's going to cost and how mm -hmm. much we're going to spend, um, there's been renewed talk about an income tax as mm -hmm. well as um, a capital gains tax. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering what your take is on, on those what you think, and maybe also what you think about our tax system in general. Well, I tried to change it uh, yes, and indeed. probably killed an income tax for two political generations. But, um, uh, but I, never, I never talked about proposing an income tax. I always talked about the fact that we needed tax reform, which included an income tax. But if you just go out and want to pile an income tax on top of whatever we've got now, uh, I think that's wrong. I would oppose it, and I did oppose the last time and, and just an income tax would come out. Or uh, the uh, view of some that, uh, well, we ought to tax the rich. Uh, and I think everybody ought to have skin in the game. 
and they would pay more attention if they did. Uh, and the tax reform that we came up with was a tax reform that uh, um, lowered the sales tax very considerably, um, brought the property taxes back to 1% without a need for uh, any um, special levies for the support of schools. It would virtually have eliminated the B&O tax on business and, uh, and then substituted a uh, single-rate income tax with the exemptions and deductions that would make it progressive. That combination, I think, is something that um, makes sense. Uh, it didn't get very far with the people. Interestingly enough, at that time, uh, it passed the legislature with overwhelming support. It passed the House 84 to 11, and the Republican state convention of that year uh, had tax reform as one of its planks, including an income tax. So it's not something. Times have changed they a lot. They certainly have. But I might just add that uh, I've had uh, Don Burroughs, who was the chief um, uh, analyst for the Department of Revenue and then served uh, for a time as director of the department, has done, at my request, twice, 10 years later and 20 years later after that tax reform, where would we be? And he has just finished another one that measures where we would be today. And we would have $5 billion more a year My goodness. in revenue, which is too much. Exactly. And so we would be able to, we would have been able to lower taxes during that period of time. Uh, even though we started out with tax reform being just a substitute in terms of dollars for what we had before, but it was the growth potential of that system that uh, we lost out on. So, Governor, uh, I think Mary was telling you before we started recording that, that we're in, involved with this little project that we call Common Ground, trying to find ways where we can mm -hmm. get to a place where we're working together rather than fighting with each other in society here in Washington State. So I want to ask you, because you have a long perspective of this, and you went through a lot of battles all through <laughs> these years, mm -hmm. what do you think of the state of, of public discourse this day in terms of, of partisanship and the negativity of partisanship and also the role of ideology in both parties. I mean, do you have any thoughts mm -hmm. on that? Well, we've always had strong ideologies in, uh, in politics on both sides of the, uh, of the aisle. And, and uh, I think one of our strengths as a country has been that we, we tend to collect in two political parties rather than like some other countries with a host of political parties, no majorities, the necessity of um, uncertain coalitions in order to govern. And I think that's, I think we're a lot better off where we are. Uh, of course, uh, all the time I served as governor, I never had a Republican House and Senate to work with. I had a Republican House for six years and those are the most uh, productive years of the time I was governor because we, by the very fact of a Democratic-controlled Senate and Republican-controlled House, uh, we, we had to get together. But it was, you know, it was, I wouldn't say easy, but it um, was a time when people did work together. And uh, 
I think one of the problems we have today as compared with then is uh, in, in those days it was a 24-hour news cycle and newspapers were the prime source of information. Television was just coming along uh, and in those days, in fact, television would use film and uh, more than once I'd have one of the television stations after an Olympia newscast uh, or a news conference uh, come to me and said, well, I understand that you're going to Seattle. Uh, would your driver mind dropping the film off at the, uh, <laughs> at the station? Uh, and we did it more than once. But, uh, but that, I think people at that time had, at least they had the opportunity for a lot more depth in understanding what was going on in Olympia. And Olympia is, uh, state government is a very important thing. They're the, you know, they're, they're the originator and sort of governing council for all of local governments. Uh, and collectively, state governments really have a very strong role to play nationally. But people today know very little about what's going on in Olympia. So I, I would say that the the change in the news cycle has probably had as much to do with um, the fact that we're, you know, we're we're into slogans and we're into uh, uh, which tends to divide us rather than more depth. We the, the average voter, I believe, uh, forty years ago, understood more about state government in depth than we do today with the instantaneous news cycle. I've said more than once that it's sort of like the uh, one of the original explorers who went through Nebraska and his description of the Platte River in Nebraska was, it's a mile wide and inch deep and muddy. <laughs> and that <laughs> describes today's um, information, news information, to me pretty accurately. With that in mind, though, Governor, uh, do you see hope in terms of people who are active on the issues in the re in, in both parties and of different ideologies? Are you seeing? Are you still seeing as many people of goodwill that want to do the right thing out there? In other words, some raw material for working together on. Oh, I do. In fact, I, right now I'm very positive about uh, you know what's happening in Olympia in terms of candidates uh, and, and people elected on both sides. Uh, I've, uh, I've watched and, and, and been active in helping to you know, push people to run uh, you know, on the Republican side, obviously. Uh, and we've got some bright, younger, really good people who have been elected on the Republican side. Uh, I had uh, Hans Zeiger, who is one of those young Republicans from Puyallup, uh, and uh, he helped found a um, special caucus in the House, the Under-40s Caucus. Well, it was all the young, and there are a lot of good young legislators, and, but this is a caucus of both Democrats and Republicans. And uh, he wanted to know uh, several years ago whether I'd like to go on a hike. Uh, with some of the representatives of that caucus, and I have for the last several years, and it's been fun. We go on a day hike, we meet for a luncheon afterwards, and uh, it's bipartisan, and you know, very smart. I'm very impressed with the young people I meet. And so I think there's the potential is really high uh, for something like that. But I, and I do think that it takes, um, you know, it can happen 
just um, generically within the legislature doesn't hurt if a governor uh, helps to expand that by uh, I think uh, one of the best things a governor can do, and, and I found it very, very powerful in terms of ultimately getting my programs going, was to invite legislators uh, to the mansion. And that's where the mansion is a very, it's a very important and very positive kind of thing because when I was a legislator and invited to the mansion, I thought, wow, that's pretty impressive. And when you invite uh, some of the younger legislators who aren't the leadership uh, and bring them over, you have a chance to really expand on that very thing. And I think the more people know each other and work together and, and see each other, uh, the better chance there is to translate that to legislative action. It just, I, I read, I think, every word of your keynote address, <laughs> and you said the same thing in 1968. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I wish there were more leaders that, that took the time to do that. I think that we've gotten very, or we, we as in the political world, people get very invested in their reelection mm -hmm. and not in actually solving our mm -hmm. problems. And it's uh, one thing that really has happened uh, that has changed things is just that it's money. And the money in campaigns uh, is just way, way beyond anything that we could have remotely conceived of when I was running. I, I, I raised uh, in each of the three campaigns for governors uh, just about $500,000. They spend twice that much now on legislative races, so um, it and it um, and it was a volunteer. In my first campaign, we had over thirteen thousand active, really active volunteers working on the campaign, and it's um, you know if if there is a way you can spark volunteer action, I think that is still. Uh, a very powerful force and and could ultimately overcome uh, some of the obscene amounts of money that are being spent on political campaigns today. Yeah. Um, one more question from me. Uh, it's kind of a, a very broad-based one. Um, what do you think are some of the biggest challenges from a, a legislator, chief executive, policymaker's point of view for the state, and even if you want to add the country as well, what what do you what do you feel like we need needs the most attention now or in the next five years? Well, at the state level, uh, which obviously I know best, um, I, I think that the change or the the modification, change, modernization, whatever you want to call it, uh, of our school system has to be number one. It's the most urgent and uh, it's something we have to do. Uh, but as I said earlier, I don't think that it all relates to money. I, I think we have got to really step in and uh, one of the things that I tried to do when I was governor, or at least uh, uh, proposed, but it never got very far then, was to create a principal's academy. Uh, in other words, uh, to really focus on the principal as the, uh, as that's where the school systems ought to have their leadership. It can't come from central administration. Right. 
and I think if you really set your goals and then let give the principals and the, each school a chance to really uh, focus on how they can best spend the money that they're, that they're given, I think we would end up with a lot better educational system and a much less costly system because uh, every time you centralize something, it tends to get, you know, just by the nature of centralization, it tends to get bloated. Right. And I think that's where we are with educational system today. That makes a lot of sense because when you read, you know, in the paper about individual high schools that have really turned around student performance, sure, most of the time it's because of a, an incredibly dynamic, passionate principal. Sure. Yeah. And if you and if you had this kind of an academy, so that every potential principal had the the background, the training, the you know the all the experience that. Uh, could flow into that, uh, we could translate that unique and kind of rare experience right throughout the system. Maybe it's time to resurrect that idea. Huh? Well, uh, maybe, maybe maybe that'll become a uh, political campaign issue. Who knows? <laughs> well, thank you very much, Governor Evans. We really enjoyed uh, listening to you today and being able to ask you some questions. This is Lou Moore. I've been here with Mary Strau and Randy Abrams-Karras interviewing Governor Dan Evans. And thank you very much. Policy Today is a production of the Washington Research Council, dedicated to providing timely, credible research and policy analysis supporting economic vitality and private sector job creation. For more information, go to researchcouncil.org.